0: are listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit redeemersgf.com. And so we are going to be in the book of Ezra, continuing. And so if you would, go ahead and turn there. We are going to cover four chapters. Chapters three through six. I'm not going to read them all in their entirety, but we are going to focus on chapters three, four, five and six. So last week so we, we actually started the sermon two Sundays ago, and then we took a break last week, um, just because of the holiday, and Mark did a good job bringing in uh, Titus chapter three, and we're thankful for him for doing that. And so we're back into Ezra. In so many ways, the Bible speaks of God's steadfast, enduring love towards us. And so, I want you to hear this—a little bit of this—the uh, snippet of this story that I got from the Focus on the Family website about this marriage. Charles and Sarah Rippey went to met in grammar school. Charles was in sixth grade. Sarah was in fourth. For the next 89 years, they went together like cookies and milk. They were married in 1942, more than 75 years ago, and had five children. Other than when Charles fought in World War II, Charles and Sarah were rarely apart, even in death. Their son, Mike Rippey, said he believes his father died trying to save his mother during a California wildfire. Charles Rippy's body was found in the charred remains of the hallway just outside where his wife was sleeping. From where they found his body, he was trying to get, to get from his room to her room, he said. He never made it, but even if he had, he wouldn't have been able to get her out. And there was no way he would have left. And the story touched this author deeply, saying, yes, it was tragic, but beautiful too. As a husband, I want to end well like Charles did, committed to my wife. He said, I certainly don't know the intricacies of the Rippies' marriage, of their relationship with Christ, but I appreciate the example they set. I want to grow old with my wife, Aaron, and celebrate our 75th wedding anniversary with our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. I want to pursue my wife till the very end. I want to treasure Aaron until God calls one of us home. So the reason I share that story, listen to the desire of the men in this story, of the husbands. The older gentleman who passed away and even the husband who writes this article. There's a deep desire and love and affection for their wives, his wife. And they are wanting their marriage to endure. They want to be committed. They want to be faithful. And if necessary, lay their lives down for their wives, for their families. And I I was thinking about this. Where does that desire even really come from? And I think we know that desire is something that is a mirrored reflection of the God who first loved us, who has endured our harlotry, if you will, who has never desired to divorce himself from us, but to keep us, and even when necessary, to lay down his life for us. And so throughout the entire Bible, often people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is the God of... Wrath, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. But all over the Old Testament and into the New, we're talking about the same God. And even the theme of His steadfast love that endures forever. So He is our husband and we are His bride. And He uh, pursues us and He is enduring with us. And that is enduring steadfast love. I mean, think about our time in the Word since August. It's been a heavy last several months, right? We're all, we're all looking forward to getting out of the Old Testament and the prophets and the times of exile and all those things because it seems like it's really heavy, right? But there's been times that it's been really encouraging and, um, and even joyful for us. But look, we got into the book of Lamentations in the month of August, which seemed like suicide, if you will. But we learned in Lamentations that people God's people sinned against him and so he disciplined his people and then from there we went to the book of Esther and we we saw God's people living in exile as a result of their sin they were no longer in Jerusalem they were no longer around the temple there was no longer that gathered worship and now here in the book of Ezra we're seeing that God is really kind of coming full circle if you will bringing his people back to himself And so what we have seen since August is really this enduring, steadfast love of God, even with the people who have completely rejected Him. He is good. He is faithful. And His steadfast love endures forever. And so we're going to see that today. And I pick up on that theme not just out of thin air, but we'll see it, we'll read it today in the book of Ezra. But even in the time of Ezra, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai specifically speaks of this same steadfast love of the Lord. And so I want to carry that as we work through chapters three through six. And so we'll see how the Lord is steadfast in his love and how he restores our worship. How he helps us endure opposition, how he cares for his people and how he ultimately desires to set his people free. And so come with me to chapter 3, we're going to see the enduring steadfast love of God and how it restores worship. I'm actually going to read all of chapter 3, I'm not going to do that in every chapter, but I'm going to read all of chapter 3 because it is going to set the stage and set the tone for where we're going and give a proper context. Just a reminder, chapter 1 and 2, Cyrus, king of Persia, comes into play and Basically allowing the, uh, the, the wave of exiles to come back in. Hey, Jer- Jews, you're, you can come back into Jerusalem. And so he sends out that decree for them to do so. And so the Jews start kind of getting themselves poised and positioned to start doing the work of rebuilding. And we'll see, they'll run into some conflict, but that's where we're at. Chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns... The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each had required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Ty- uh, Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen. The priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the, the captivity, they appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmil and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers." And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Here it is. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house. Of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites. And heads of the father's houses. Old men who had seen the first house. Wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish. The sound of the joyful shout. From the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. And the sound was heard. Far away. The enduring steadfast love of God. Restores. Worship. So kind of coming back, what you see here right away in verse 1, this is, this is a, a verbiage that I love reading in the Old Testament, and you see it just a few times, where it says that Israel came together or gathered together as one man. And that idea that they had a common bond, they had a common goal, they had a common purpose for coming together. And they gathered under the leadership of Joshua, under Zerubbabel, <coughs> With the purpose of doing what? With the purpose of worshiping. And what's the first thing that they do? The temple hasn't been constructed. There's no church building, if you will. And so what do they do? They build an altar right away. And they start making all sorts of offerings. And they do it for how long? Every morning and every evening. While we're not going to get into the intricacies of all the different types of offerings and the reasons for all those, what we do see this and what we can gather from this is that worship is nonstop. Think about it. Jews, thousands upon thousands of Jews are coming back to this place where their temple once stood and they're offering worship 24-7. That means there's a constant flame. There's a constant smoke of the burning of the sacrifice. There's a constant flow of blood there's constant atonement if you will there's constant worship going on in this place and worship precedes the building or precedes the facility right and i would even say worship is the reason that they went to go build the temple they didn't build the temple hoping that people would somehow worship as a result but no worship or the temple was a byproduct of their worship And then in verses 9 through 13, you see the foundation of the temple was laid. It was laid. Haggai, in his book, the book of Haggai, actually confirms this in the second chapter as well. So you see this in Scripture, that this is something that really took place. I mean, you can actually go to Jerusalem and still see the temple foundation and walls. But when this happened, what did the people do? They praised Right. They praised. We see that in verse 11. And they sing to God a very distinct and unique song, a song that comes from King David back in First Chronicles, chapter 16. And this is unique because David, if you remember, David did not get did not get to build the temple. He had sinned against the Lord, and so the Lord said, kind of as discipline, you don't get to build the temple, but your son after you gets to build the temple. But that didn't stop David from worshiping anyways. He worshiped before the tabernacle, really the portable temple, if you will, saying these very words that God's love endures forever. And why wouldn't David say that? He had committed adultery. He had committed murder. And yet God still chose to fulfill his promise through that mess up, through that man. And so we see here in the same spirit, if you will, a people standing before a foundation that has just been laid, a temple that has not yet been built, just the framework of it, if you will, the foundation of it. And yet they're throwing up praise to God. Because just like David, they are anticipating the day that this is going to happen. Even though David never saw it, he knew that it was going to happen. And even though some of the old men and women who are sitting there looking at the foundation may not live to see it to come, see it to, come to completion. They have hope that it will. And notice that. We're talking about 50 to 70 years after their captivity This is taking place. Old men and women who had once experienced the temple. The temple of Solomon in all its glory and splendor. Have now. Have seen it completely wiped away. And are now seeing it just at its foundation. And and there's this weird picture of them weeping and rejoicing. At the same time. But think about it. They're weeping Because. They know what has happened the last 50 to 70 years. They sinned against their God. They were taken into captivity. This beautiful place, this beautiful house that was to be a house of prayer for all the nations was completely destroyed and lied in ruins. And of course, that would be depressing. But at the same time, they could also rejoice knowing that God is going to follow through on his promises. And that was the hope in the book of Lamentations, the hope that we ultimately saw strung through the book of Esther and the hope we will continue to see in Ezra. So church, I want to call us to a unique kind of worship, if you will, a worship where we could be defined as a people who worship as one man, one people. I mean, is that not the language of the entire Bible? And especially in the New Testament, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are one people. And so when, when people in your circle, wherever that is, whoever they are, when they look at you, do they see somebody who is just an individual person who worships God? Or do they see you as a person who is a part of a whole Of people who worships God. Make sense? So when they look at you, you're just your individual Christian, or they look at you and they see the church of God. That you're with your people. Let's call it Redeemer. Let's call it the church, right? And I think that's something that we've lost in our society, in our culture. And I think in a lot of ways, 2020 is refining us to say what are the essentials? What are the essentials, not only to living and being healthy, but what are the essentials to the church? What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be unified? What does it mean to be one in Christ? Because look, when we come up here at the end of service and we take communion and Paul tells us from the word to examine the body, that means we have to know the body. That means we can't just know a section of the body, just the one or two pews That we sit in. But we actually need to know the body. We need to know stories. We have to work to be one man, if you will, in Christ. And that's a good thing. And we need to worship our God. For his steadfast love endures forever. You all know yourselves really well. Think about all the mess ups. Everything that you've done that's been wrong, or the laws that you've broken, or the the fines that you've had to pay, or the relationships that you've completely shattered, how you've really ruined everything, how you've really just, you know, given it to God in your life. And yet, even amidst all of that, God still enduringly shows His love towards you. He is worthy of praise in that way. And listen, church. Jesus is our foundation. He's our foundation. The New Testament makes clear. He's our foundation. He's also our cornerstone. Upon Him we are the temple. The living temple. The church of God being built upon Him. One stone at a time. And so I need to ask. What foundation are you standing upon? Where is your worship? Is it upon the foundation of Christ? Or is it upon anything else? We all know the song, right? All other grounds are sinking sand, right? But Jesus is the rock. He is that firm foundation. And so we must be built upon Him. And let me bring you into a reality here. The temple is not perfectly complete. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem right now. We are still watching the temple, if you will, be rebuilt. We're watching the church slowly be built upon the foundation that is Christ. And yet we still have reason to worship. And so we need to then have a longing and a desire for that completed product, if you will. That day where we will be perfectly with him forever. And so we worship now because we have an assured down payment on the cross. And so then, how is our life a giant worship service than in anticipating an eternal reality? Because this worship isn't just, you know, only when you show up to the temple foundation or only when you show up to this building on Sunday morning, but all of worship, all of life is an act of worship unto God. So then how are we worshiping God in light of what is to come? Do you feel anything? I mean, do you have any longing? Do you find yourself possibly weeping for the church to know their God? To be built upon Him? To be in right relationship with Him? Do you have that desire in you at all? Because if not then we will never be one man in Christ. Ever. So when we properly worship Jesus this side of eternity, we must rest assured that opposition will always come. Opposition will always come. And so we see in chapter 4, the enduring steadfast love of God through opposition. Opposition. Let me read the first four verses, and then I'll read verse 24. Chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, <clears throat> they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And if you go to verse 24, it says, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And I'll explain that big jump to verse 24 in just a moment. You notice the enemies of Judah and Benjamin here. It's it's kind of tough to discern fully who these people are. But kind of taking what we see here in the text, we can kind of narrow it down to these Samaritans, if you will. These are people who are claiming we worship the same God, yet they are enemies of the Jews who are building a temple for the same God. If we were to back up a little bit and try to get a little bit of understanding here, the Samaritans are folks who dwell in the north of Israel. Remember, Israel was one nation for a time. Then the people of Israel got at conflict with one another, and so they divided. You had northern Israel and you had southern Israel. And in the north, you have the land of Samaria. And when God had brought the Assyrians in to capture northern Israel, you had a group of people who had colonized in northern Israel, and they eventually became known as the Samaritans. And in a roundabout kind of way, they began to try to syncretize their beliefs with Jewish beliefs. And when you get into 2 Kings chapter 17, I'll let you read that on your own, they try to do that and God then punishes them sending lions upon these people. And when that happened, they realized, okay, God isn't really happy with how we're worshiping here. So then these Samaritans then go to the priests, these Jews, and say, hey, why don't you teach us your laws and teach us your God and we'll begin to follow Him in your kind of way. And so from that point on, you essentially had these pseudo-Jews, right? These Assyrian, these pagan people who come in and wreaked havoc all in northern Israel and now are wanting to be a part of the same belief system. As you can imagine, that creates some tension and hostility, and that was just the beginning of the tensions that you would see between Jews and Samaritans that eventually show up in the New Testament. That happened about 200 years before, for this situation here in the book of Ezra. So you can imagine, it's been kind of bubbling to the surface. The hostility and the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews have been kind of going for quite some time. And so now when the Jews are coming in to rebuild, the Samaritans want a piece of it as well. Even though they're against, even though they think the way that they understand the the Old Testament is different than the Jews that we see wanting to rebuild... They feel entitled to building that temple. And yet the Jews here are saying, no, you cannot build. And so there was opposition. Opposition. And this is where in chapter four, the the author of the book of Ezra does kind of this big, giant parentheses. And he does it from verse six all the way to verse twenty three. And this big parentheses is just saying is just describing an opposition that will come to the Jews before, during and after the building of the temple. Cuz if you get into the story of verses uh 6 or verse 7 through 23 that is talking about King Artaxes who or uh, Artaxerxes, excuse me, who comes after the building of the temple. And so you might understand, chronologically, we're talking about a time where the temple hasn't been built. It's only the foundation. And yet the author is sitting here talking about a king who is opposing a people after the building of the temple. Did I just confuse everybody? It's possible. Let me just break it down this way. So what we have here in chapter 4 is this. That there is opposition against God's people before, during, and after the building of the temple. And so verse 23 is really a pickup from verse five or first. Yeah, verse five. So wherever verse five hits, the the next thought is verse 24. Then after this point, after the Samaritans opposed the work of God, the work was brought to a screeching halt and was brought to a screeching halt for the next 20 years. I mean, think about it. All those old men and women who saw the temple prior are weeping and rejoicing at the foundation being laid in the temple. And now it comes to a screeching halt. They may not even be alive when the temple actually gets completed. So church, I'll say you can guarantee that when you follow the Lord closely in obedience, opposition is always going to be close at hand. The idea that Christianity is always flowery and always exciting and always mountaintop and never valleys is a lie. We have to understand there's a real enemy. There's real opposition to the kingdom of God. If Jesus's life wasn't an ongoing church camp experience, what makes us think that ours will be? Or even anyone in the entire Bible, even in the Old Testament. We must not be fools to think that the enemy is not close at hand. But even when opposition comes, here's where we can really stand firmly on the foundation of Christ and our cornerstone. That God's will, His will, will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. It doesn't matter if there's a 20-year pause. It's going to be accomplished And so sometimes, sometimes the greatest opposition are pagans, right? Outsiders, people who, um, you know, like the Persians, if you will, or the Babylonians. But in this case, it seems to be other believers, people who believed in the same God. And consider then the heaviness of our time regarding the church. It's not... A heaviness that's coming upon us because of pagan rulers and the government pressing down, trying to shut us down. It seems like that in some ways, but really that's not what we're dealing with for the most part. It's mostly an opposition arising among a people who all claim to know and worship the same God. That's where most of the tension and the opposition resides. And look, it's no surprise we live in this pseudo-Christian nation, right? We all know this. We've all talked about it in some regard. We live among a nation of people who claim Jesus, but also despise the church, despise portion of God's word, and they'll even despise a version of God who send people to hell. That's a big one now, especially. But yet, they still claim To believe the same God. And so then how do we endure such opposition? Because sometimes that seems worse than the idea of somebody just putting a gun to your head. Saying deny Jesus or I'm going to blow your brains out. Like that would be way easier. But sometimes the opposition of people who claim to worship the same Jesus is way more difficult. And so I would say we need to, in order to endure this, we need to constantly come together together. As one man, one church, one body, under the supreme truth and authority that is the Word of God. If opposition comes to the church, it comes because it's influenced by things outside of God's Word. And so then we, like the Jews in Ezra, we need to pull tightly together on the Word of God and be anchored there closely so I want to call you all to endure. It's not easy. It's not fun. Sometimes we lose sleep over it. But I want us to call, call us to endurance because it's worth it. The prize is worth it. We need to consider the much bigger picture of things and really not just get lost in the moment thinking that all is done for or all is lost. The Jews seemed to be going really well, but then 20 years just stopped everything. And that can seem like forever, right? It hasn't been 20 years since 2020 began, though it has felt like it. We're in the final month of it. And it seems like the last 12 months have been way too long, way too horrible. And they have in some ways. But we're not talking 20 years. We need to position ourselves to really endure. And we may be frustrated also with cultural Christianity. And so here's what I would say. We cannot just sit and stew and just bubble over in anger. We need to be proactive as disciples of Jesus. All of us to call the church to endurance. To rally the troops. To stay the course. To endure to remain steadfast and then also be radical like Jesus when he in his life in ministry would sit down with Samaritans and call them to true and proper worship. And so look, Jesus is not overlooking these hard days. He's not overlooking them. Because even in times of great opposition, the loving eyes of God are always on his people. Chapter 5. The enduring and steadfast love of God. Upon his people. Let me read the first couple of verses here. Now the prophets. Haggai and Zechariah. The son of Edo. Prophesied to the Jews. Who were in Judah and Jerusalem. In the name of God of Israel. who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Jump to verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter Concerning it. So there's this 20 year break from pursuing what God had called them to do, which was rebuild the temple. Now, King Darius comes into power, and we see from this point on the work is going to start picking up. But it doesn't start initially under the decree of King Darius, it starts under really the supervision of the prophets. Haggai and Zechariah. They were the prophets who were with the people, and they were the ones who were calling the people to start the work back up and to just get going with it. And while they were getting and going with it, there were local authorities coming in saying, hey, wait, what are you doing? Who are you and why are you building this? And with the eyes of the Lord upon the people... They just reminded them, hey, this is a decree that was set by Cyrus, two kings before you, that we should rebuild this place. And so the governing official says, okay, I'm going to go check on the report. I'm going to make sure this is, this is legit. You can keep doing your thing, but when I come back, if this isn't supposed to happen, we're going to have to stop it. And so the prophets are sitting here coaching the people and not just coaching the people, but they're speaking, the prophets are speaking the word of God to the people as they are rebuilding. And let me remind you of what, of, of some of the things that the prophets were saying to the people during this time. <coughs> Haggai came hard to the Jews. He said, hey, look, we've been sitting here for about 20 years and look, you're living nice in the Persian Empire, If you remember what we talked about in the book of Esther, the Persian empire was kind of like the American empire, if you will. There was a lot of wealth, a lot of prosperity, a lot of comfortable living. And some of the Jews, like we saw with Esther and Mordecai, thought, I don't really want to go back to Jerusalem. And so these Jews were living in this really nice uh, empire. And so Haggai says, hey, look, you're living in paneled housing. You're living in really nice homes, and yet the house of God lies in ruins. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) So he comes out hard in that way. But then as you work through the book of Haggai, you see then that the people respond, and they respond with godly fear, and they go, and they begin to rebuild. And in Haggai's prophecies as well, he is telling the people as they're laying brick and mortar if you will, that God promises he will be with them. He is with them in their endeavors. And that as soon as they get done with the temple, the glory that is going to come upon this place will be greater than the glory in the time of Solomon. You can imagine, right, kind of that pregame speech where the coach is really getting everybody amped up. I can see that amped up enthusiasm and zeal among the people of God that His glory is going to come upon this place and it'll be greater than in the time of King Solomon. And there's a there's a promise here in Haggai that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and he's going to overthrow the kingdoms of the earth. And we see this was something that even Daniel, the prophet mentioned before. Haggai, and he said this, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So Daniel and Haggai are both saying to the people, you're building a temple, but God is going to establish something that will outlast the temple. And then Zechariah, alongside Haggai, is sitting here saying, Hey, guess what? God is going to promise somebody who's going to help build this temple up. And his name is called the branch. The branch is going to come. This is a messianic reference. And this branch comes, and he is zealous for Zion. He is zealous for his temple. And he promises that he will be with his people in their midst. And then Zechariah makes this astonishing messianic claim. That means he is predicting, if you will, the coming of Jesus in the very end of Zechariah, or in Zechariah chapter 9. Let me read this, and this should sound very familiar. So, in the time of them building... He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Haggai and Zechariah hold no punches. They are hopeful in what is happening before them. But they are hopeful of something that is coming beyond them. And the people are understanding it that well. And if that passage sounds somewhat familiar to you. And you can't seem to remember where it's connected. It's connected to Easter. The last week of Jesus' life. He enters into Jerusalem. Humbled. Mounted on a donkey. With the purpose of a week later. He would be hanging on a cross. And Notice, notice the imagery here. This king who is about to come and overthrow kingdoms, overthrow the Persian Empire, overthrow all these powerhouses, is going to do it saddled on a donkey? This is, this is something magnificent. This is something unique. This is something that is beyond human ability. This is of a kingdom that is not of this world. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And so these Jews, with all this hope, with all this anticipation of a future hope, ultimately we know, realized in Jesus, they continue to work and they are encouraged under the leadership of the prophets. Church, I'll tell you this, you will always have the support of God through His word. He will always support you through his word and he'll support you through his church and he'll do it with the comforter. That is the Holy Spirit. You understand he's called the comforter because life is uncomfortable. And so he provides comfort. He provides help. He provides healing. And So there's never a moment in time or in our life where we are ever truly alone, even if we're on an island we're never alone. We have the word of God. We have his spirit. We have the prayers of the saints in the very least. But we have one another. We have him. Do we understand or believe that God has his eye upon us? That he's keeping us? Right? I love idioms. Right? Because it's like... If you talk to a child, a small child, and you say, hey, keep your eye on the ball. And they take the ball and they put it on their face. (laughs) That's an idiom. God's not really throwing his eyeballs on us. But the idea is that he is watching over us. He's caring for us. He sees us. He's aware of the pain, right? It's It's like we saw in the book of Exodus when Israel was suffering. Their children were being murdered. They were enslaved. And it says that God saw them. He knew them. He remembered them. Church, God sees us. He remembers us. He has not forgotten us. And that's why in these latter days, He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the living, breathing Word of God. And so we have hope. And so we need to be comforted to know that God cares for us, He loves us. He's not here to just beat us down. And one of the hopes in these prophecies we read is that God would bring peace. He brings peace. And is that not something we celebrate in Christmas, in Advent, that he comes to bring peace on earth? And so that peace will come through a baby who ultimately will grow up and who will saddle a donkey and humbly go into a city full of humility and power, and He will overthrow sin and death by laying down His life for His people, for His bride. And so through this death, resurrection, and really the outpouring of His Holy Spirit, will this peace come. And that peace, Paul talks about later in the New Testament, is what binds us together As the body of Christ. It's what holds us together. As the temple of the living God. Peace has a meaning of wholeness or completeness. And so we are as one man. One in Christ. With the peace of Christ. Bonding us. Binding us together. And holding us strong. And so God is restoring our relationship with him. He's restoring our relationship with one another and he's doing it through Christ Jesus the branch the king promised the king of a kingdom that cannot be shaken that is the peace and the hope that binds us all together and God is working in the book of Ezra to bring us to the gospel of Jesus which is the ultimate the ultimate God keeping an eye on you that we could ever ask for So are you one who's just looking out for yourself? Or are you trusting in the Lord who is looking out for you? Are you autonomous? You got this. Pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't need anyone's help. Or are you realizing I need to be reliant upon him? The Jews couldn't just build the temple in their own power. If the Persians said you can't build it, they couldn't build it unless the eye of the Lord was upon them. And granted them favor. So God's love is not just watching over his people. He's not just passive. He's not just looking, but he's actively working to set them free. Chapter six, the enduring and steadfast love of God sets his people free. If you go down to verse 14, so now King Darius, he he does the digging. He finds the decree that Cyrus had made. He said, oh, yeah. They need to be building the temple. This is what they need to do. Don't anybody get in their way? Give them all the money and the resources they need. If anybody opposes them, they are going to be impaled by a log from their own house. A <laughs> little so creepy. But so then the Jews continue on in their building, and they are successful. And we see towards the latter part of chapter 6 that they are able to build the temple. Verse 14 says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet of Zechariah, the son of Edom. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth month of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the return exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And you see in the remaining part of the chapter that they keep the Passover and they keep the feast of unleavened bread. And that is how they continue to worship. And so Cyrus, uh, the, the decree of Cyrus was recovered. Darius restores the work. The temple is completed over 20 years later. And so they prospered and then they rejoiced. And these last verses, in talking about them celebrating the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I want to hit on that for just a second. Let me read the final verses, and we're done reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the unclean, uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with the joy, with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Passover is... Something that was instituted back in the book of Exodus when God delivered his people out of Egypt and it was done on the 14th day. So basically they take the blood of a perfect lamb and that blood would cover God's people and deliver them from that enslavement of their enemy into freedom to God. And so in the time of Israel coming out of Egypt, because their house was covered in the blood of the lamb, God did not destroy their firstborn, and ultimately he destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, causing mayhem, if you will, and the people of Israel were delivered out of that bondage from the Egyptians. So no longer enslaved to Egypt, but now free. And so this is the same celebration that goes on, the idea of being now delivered from enslavement. The Feast of Unleavened Bread overlaps the Passover, so the feast, the Passover happens on the 14th day. Unleavened bread happens on the 15th day. And it's a feast reminding Israel to be holy, really as the Lord is holy, to remove all leaven. Leaven in the scripture talks about that sin in the body, or that leaven is used in the bread and it spreads throughout the dough, helping it to rise. And leaven is often used in describing sin. In the body or sin among a person that it spreads and it affects the body. And so they are to remove all leaven, all unholiness from the people. So here's the celebration that God has delivered us out of enslavement. God has set us free and God has made us holy. And remember, Israel up to this point had done anything, had not done anything to actually deserve this sort of freedom, to deserve this sort of treatment by God. They're the ones who rebelled against Him. They're the ones who sinned against Him. And yet God does this for them. And we notice there are two groups of people worshiping. The Jews and the non-Jews. The Jews and the non-Jews. People who came in, I'm talking about Gentiles, people who came in and were converted, if you will, to Judaism. And so again, we see in the whole Bible that God has always been for people. Always been for people who would put their faith and trust in Him, put their worship in Him. And so just like we learned from the prophet Zechariah, the Lord will set captives free. God's Word is irrevocable, church, meaning it will not change, it cannot be changed. His decree is an eternal decree and how easily it is for us to think that God is just going to change his mind like we do something to make him mad and all of a sudden he's going to be he's going to change his mind about being for us and loving us God is not changing he is constant notice when the israelites do the 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 feast and they do the sacrifices they do it according to the word of moses and when they were singing praises they were singing the words of david people who existed way before they did What it shows is the consistency of God's Word to remain true through that whole time. And so God's Word has not changed. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so sometimes we consider just throwing in the towel, quitting, giving up the church, giving up on marriage, giving up on difficult circumstances because we might see the hypocrisy or failures of a given person or thing around us. Well, I thought they were the church. Why are they so judgmental? Why, you know, I thought I thought this marriage was supposed to be, you know, flowery and we're always supposed to love each other and be happy with each other like, you know what? I just fell out of love with you. But we're considering the wrong thing. We cannot just call it quits based on the failures of sinners. Like does it really surprise you when sinners sin? I mean, does that really shock you? What we need to consider then is not the failures of sinners, but what we need to consider then is God's word and how it's constant, how it's the same, it's firm. No matter the problem, no matter the situation, no matter what someone says, or no matter how much the church hurts you or your spouse hurts you or you get frustrated with your kids or your employment really stinks, you can always remain confident in the eternal decree of God. Always, you always, you and I always have reason to rejoice and to be hopeful. And when we trust in his irrevocable will, we are then able to trust in the perfect work of Jesus, who is the Passover lamb, who is the sanctifier of our souls. We have to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He is the perfect fulfillment of this. And as the church, Paul tells us, we are to clean, cleanse out the unleaven, the sin of our hearts, to remove it from the church and to be anchored deeply in Christ. Jesus has freed us from captivity to sin. And we are now in bondage to holy righteousness, real love, real hope. And so we are now under a power that can overcome sin and darkness. There's no reason we have to believe that we can't come out of this. And Jesus has made us holy. And so we are to constantly pursue holiness. We're constantly to go after him. We're not to be okay with just sin or tolerating sin. Sin is destructive. It's divisive. It is not freeing. It enslaves us. It hurts us. It binds us. And I understand sometimes the idea of pursuing holiness can come off as uh, being judgmental or higher than others or even a legalist. But that's not what the Bible talks about at all. Pursuing that holiness is really leaning into the body and the blood of Christ and living more and more like him. Being more and more like him. Acting like him. Speaking like him in every way, and that is freeing, it's loving, it gives us reason to rejoice and to hope. So church, look, we're in a holding pattern, we're in a holding pattern right now until the new Jerusalem comes, until the, the final temple is perfectly built. And so let me give you a small glimpse of what is to come as I bring this to an end, from Revelation 21. into, into it, the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus would come at Christmas as a baby to bring bring peace to earth. He would live a perfect and righteous life. He would live a life full of zeal for his Father's will. He would enter Jerusalem the last week of his life mounted on a donkey to to overcome the world not by force but by his blood. And a week later during Passover he would lay down his life as the Passover lamb setting captives free by his blood and three days later he would raise to a new life that would become the new righteous unleavened holy life of the church. And as the church We rejoice in his steadfast love to lay down his life. And in a manner of living like our Jesus, we lay ourselves down for one another. Because at the end of it all, we all as one man comprised of all nations and all tongues will shout for all eternity. Praise Jesus for his steadfast love endures forever.